Good morning. We are here this morning because Jesus is alive, because he rose from the dead. And that's not only why we're here this morning, that's why we're here every Sunday morning, because Jesus is alive, because he rose from the dead. And in our last series, we, we looked at a generous lifestyle, and we said that generosity is something that God wants for us and not from us. And really, the only reason that we know that Jesus is alive is because over 2,000 years ago, the men and women who witnessed Jesus, they actually saw his life, they were generous with their lifestyle. They were generous with their time, talents, treasures, and most importantly, their testimony of what Jesus Christ had done in their life. One of my favorite stories is, is uh, from Acts chapter 26, um, where Paul, who is uh, an apostle, uh, is standing before Festus. He's actually in a little bit of trouble for being a little too generous with his testimony. Some people thought, hey, man, this, this converting people to Jesus thing, it's, that's a little too much. We're going to put you in chains to s- try to stop you from doing that, and they weren't very successful. So Paul is arrested, he's in chains, and he has a trial before Festus, who is a Roman governor. in in Judea at the time. He was appointed by the Romans to be governor there. And also King Herod Agrippa is there. Now Agrippa was kind of this puppet king that the Romans placed over uh, the Israelite people so that they could have their own Israelite king uh, like they all wanted, but he was really just there under Caesar's control. And so Paul's there, and, and they know Paul. He's just reminding them of his background, that he's this intellectual guy. He's, he's a well-studied man. Like if there were doctorates and PhDs, he would He would have those back in his day. Um, But he was also just a a man who was well-studied. He knew the scripture. He'd studied the scriptures. And and in fact, he says, let me remind you, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees were like the religious leaders of the day. And he says, not only was I a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I I was one who was out there who was involved in persecuting the church. And then he says, but but something happened. The light came on. Literally. The light came on. I was on, on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, and a light from heaven came on, and the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to me. And at this point, Festus stops him, and he says, Paul, your great learning has driven you insane. And Paul says, and I think he's a little bit sarcastic because that's the way I would be, but he's like, most excellent Festus, I most surely am not insane. What I'm saying is reasonable and true. And he says, king, and I think he points it, Agrippa, he goes, the king knows it, because these things didn't happen in a corner. They happened in the sight of everyone. And he's saying, look, Jesus wasn't crucified in a corner off somewhere that the king didn't know about it. Jesus, the followers didn't say that he rose from the dead. There were, at one point, 500 people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And so he says, look, these things didn't happen in a corner. The king knows about it. And the king stops Paul, and he goes, Paul, do you think you're going to convert me in such a short time? Paul says, long time or short, it doesn't matter to me. My desire is that you and everyone here would be like me, except for this whole being arrested thing. He says, I want you and everyone within the sound of my voice to be like me, to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would be like me. He's like, that's my agenda. That's why I'm giving this testimony here today. And let me tell you, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, not just this morning, but every Sunday morning, I, I have a twofold agenda as the pastor. My agenda is first to, to equip the saints 
That is to provide some training, some encouragement to those who already believe in Jesus Christ, to those who are already Christ followers, that they would be able to go out the next week and be encouraged and have a deeper understanding in their relationship with God, that they would be able to invest in the lives of people around them who don't know Jesus, so that they can go where they live, work, and play, and like Paul, make sure that everyone they know hears about Jesus Christ. That's, that's my, one of my main objectives. The other one is this, that if you're here, if you're listening online or you're here in the, in the audience this morning, uh, congregation, that, that you, I would say something and, and be able to encourage, to persuade, or to convince you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to be up front. That is my agenda. If you're here and you're not a Christ follower, that is my agenda, is to encourage, persuade, beg, uh, convince you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to be upfront about that. And, and when I talk about a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about a churchgoer, someone who comes to church. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about an American who's like, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Buddhist. The only other box to check would be Christian, so I guess I must be Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about someone who says, yes, I know about Jesus and I try to live a good life. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say that my desire is to see each and every one of you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it means this, that my desire is that you would place your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that that would be such a life-changing reality to you that you would reorient your entire life around the scripture and the teachings of Jesus. That you would fall so in love with Jesus Christ and the fact that God sent his own son to die on the cross for you that you would say, I'm going to change the way that I think about my relationships. I'm going to change the way that I think about my my marriage. I'm going to change the way that I parent. I'm going to change the way that I think about my finances because this is real to me. This is real to me. Like, that's my objective. And I understand anytime you get more than uh, four people in a room, you probably have four very different opinions and backgrounds. And so I, I think there's probably at least four categories of people here this morning. There's people that are convinced. Like, you are, you are already convinced. You are here on Easter Sunday because you recognize that this is like the Super Bowl of Christian holidays. This is the big one. And if I'm going to come to church, it's going to be Easter Sunday. And you're convinced, and you come week after week, and day after day, you open up the Scripture, and you say, God, reveal to me the gunk in my life so that I can see it and hand it back over to you, that I can continue to be changed by you. You're convinced. There's others of you here that are just curious. Maybe a friend invited you and, and you, you're somewhat familiar with Christianity, but you're just curious to find out more. It's somewhat attractive to you. And, and what I've noticed in, in my years growing up in the church and then in a number of years in ministry in the church is that a lot of times what happens is these people come and they're curious, and especially as a youth pastor, we'd have kids that would come for three, four, five years, six years, they'd, they'd get to be a senior, and all of a sudden they'd say, you know what, I believe. It's like, you believe, you believe, you've been here for six years, you've been in the small group, you've been, you've been on the worship team, you've been leading all these other places, you've been helping at VBS and Backyard Bible Clubs, and, and now you believe? And you're like, well, yeah, now I believe, because the lights come on. And there are others that are, the third group are the skeptics. Like, you're not so sure, you've got lots of questions. You want some answers. You just want to check this thing out thoroughly. And then the last group are, are the hungry. I'm not talking about hungry for the truth. I'm talking about hungry. Like someone said, hey, if you come to church with me, we're going to have barbecue afterwards. Uh, and if that's you, then, then I hope the barbecue is worth it. Uh, I, I really do. And uh, what, what I want to say is that over the next few weeks, 
what we're going to talk about is, is things that we see in Scripture. We're going to see from a couple of stories in Scripture, but also just what we can observe with our own eyes about how adults become Christians. How is it that an adult goes from not believing in Jesus Christ to being a follower of Jesus Christ? And that's what we're going to talk about. And I realize that uh, that's a pretty big task. Uh, to, to talk about that sort of thing. But I, again, I really, going back to my, my agenda here, is I want to equip those who are believers to be able to engage their friends and enemies and neighbors and coworkers and family members in a dialogue that they would be able to see those people where they live, work, and play come to faith in Jesus Christ and become Christ followers also. But if you're here and, and you're not a believer yet, man, I've got a big task ahead of me. Because I recognize that if you're not a Christian already, if you're not a Christ follower already, as an adult, there's probably a good reason. You probably have some valid concerns. Maybe you look at the world and, and you say, you know what, I, I just, the Christians talk about this good God. And I look at all the pain and suffering and evil in the world and I just, I can't reconcile those two things. I just can't bring myself to, to believe in God and see all this evil in the world. And, and maybe that's your obstacle. Or maybe you, you would say, man, I look at the church, and they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I'm better than them. Why would I want to be like them? And you know what? It's probably true. There are, there are some people outside of the church that are good, moral people, and that are probably better than some of us. And so they say, look, I, I see a bunch of hypocrisy. I, I, I don't buy into that. And others, it's, it's their background. They say, look, this is, this is the faith that I was raised in, and, and I just can't bring myself to leave it, because if I leave it, then I'm saying that my parents were wrong, that my grandparents were wrong, and, and I just, man, you're going to have to really show me something solid for me to be able to walk away from that. And so we have all, uh, all these very valid concerns and, and reasons why adults don't become Christians, and we've got to overcome those. But, but let me tell you what we're going to see in Scripture and, and what I've observed uh, in my, my years in the church is this, that adults, Christians, people who become adults as Christians, rarely do so after having worked through all their objections. I mean, it, it rarely happens. Usually what happens is, is something changes in their life, uh, some circumstance comes up to shrink those obstacles, and the light comes on. And they realize that it's personal. Like instead of God and Christianity being a category for them to study and for them to find answers to, it becomes intensely personal. And so... All of a sudden, and it, you know, what, what we normally do as Christians, when, when someone says, well, I have, I've struggled with pain and suffering, and if you can answer that, then I'll become a Christian. So you go out and you get a book, The, the Reason for God, and you go and you give them Tim Keller's Reason for God, and you're like, here, read this. It'll answer your questions, and they read it. And very rarely do they come back and say, you know what, that answered my question. I'll be a believer now. Uh, that just rarely happens. Rarely happens. I mean, we, you don't see that happening very often. Instead, what happens is, Something happens in their life to shrink those obstacles that allows the light to come on. And that's what I want us to look at in the next couple weeks. Um, you know, we, we do that over and over again that we say, here, read this, take this, and read it. And once you read it, come back to me, and, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to be a believer. And it just doesn't work that way. So we have to figure out how is it that we can show people that Jesus is, that God Christianity and Jesus are not just a category to be studied, but it's something very, very personal. And I realize that there are some people out there who say, you know what, Christianity is intensely personal. My faith is intensely personal, and what you're asking me to do is to just shut my mind off 
and to ignore these obstacles and just become a Christian. Like, I can't do that. I, I can't consider myself um, to be intellectually honest and just say, I have all these questions, but I'm going to turn my brain off and just trust Jesus blindly. Like, I can't do that. And it would be crazy for us to ask people to do that. But to them, if you have family members like that, or if you're here, to, to you, I would say, uh, in some other arenas of life, you already have. You've already fallen for an argument like that. Ladies, having babies, right? There are a number of reasons not to have a baby. It's dangerous. Like, it's, it's, it's physically dangerous for you to have a baby, not to mention what it does to your body. Not just during pregnancy and right after pregnancy, but like you realize you're never going to sleep again. You will never, ever have a full night's sleep again. Because by the time your kids are old enough where you're like, oh, they're going to sleep through the night, then they're old enough that they're out making their own friends and they're not with you 24 hours a day. And you're like, okay, who are their friends? Or maybe they're, they're in high school and you're like, okay, it's, it's uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. Where's my kid? You're never going to get a full night's sleep again. Not only that, I mean, you take into consideration the overpopulation in the world. You take into consideration adoption. Like, who am I to have another baby when there's all these babies out there that need to be adopted? And who would be crazy enough after they have triplets to have another baby? Like, that's just insane. I can't afford that. We can't afford to have kids. That's just insane. But something happens. Something happens, and you have a baby anyways because you stop thinking of it as a baby, and it becomes your baby goes from being a category to being something very, very personal. And men, we're no different. In fact, we're probably worse, right? We, we fall for the argument the exact same way uh, when we talk about marriage. How many married guys are there out there this morning? Raise your hand. Married? All right, so guys, every single one of you probably had, whether you wrote it down or not, you had a, a list of reasons for not getting married, right? Don't show it to your wife. You'll get in trouble, all right? But... You had reasons for not getting married, and, and one of those was, was uh, the first one is just that, man, I'm going to lose my freedom. If I get married, I'm never going to have freedom again, so I'm not getting married. The, the next one, you, you say, well, I just don't want to commit. That's a, that's a long time, and I see people that are breaking that commitment all the time, and I just don't want to be one of those people, so you don't want to commit. Or that it's too expensive. There's no way that I can afford everything that I want and everything that she wants too. There's no way that I can afford both of us. So many people are unhappy. I know that misery loves company, uh, but I don't want to be in that kind of company. Like, I don't want to be unhappily married, so I'm not going to get married. Maybe I'm, I'm too young. Like, I'm only 20. I'm only 30, 40. I'm only in my 50s. I'm too young to get married. Actually, when I was in college, my wife and I had, had come in from a date, and, and my uh, resident director saw me, and he goes, you are going to marry that girl after she left. And I was, my first thought was, I'm too young to die. Uh, uh, like I, so the day, before thank, uh, the day before Valentine's Day, I gave her her Valentine's Day present, and I was like, yeah, we need to break up. Uh, I need my freedom. I need, I'm too young for this. I don't have enough money. Uh, and we broke up, but uh, something happened. I realized that, uh, man, it, it became not about marriage, not about Amanda. I'm uh, not about marriage, but it became about Amanda. And I realized the girl that I'd be losing if I didn't choose her. The next is, man, I'm going to make the wrong choice. What if I choose the wrong one? What if we get married and like a month later I meet this woman and it's, it's like, oh, what if I, I show up to the reception and it's the caterer and it's like, oh, man, where were you an hour ago? You're like, that could happen. But how many of us men sat down with our list of objections and we said, you know what, um, 
I know plenty of married people, and, and their wives let them out to play every once in a while, so I really won't be losing all my freedom. Um, you know, I say I, I'm afraid of commitment, but really, I mean, I committed to this car payment. I committed to my, my retirement fund. I committed to this house payment, so it's really not commitment that I'm afraid of. I mean, it is expensive, but maybe if I just, like, save and save and save and save and save and, and wait until I'm 50 and then I marry someone with really low expectations, then, then I can afford it. Uh, and if I can afford it then, then I won't be too young. And if, if I'm worried about being unhappily married, I'll just surround myself with happily married people, and I won't let those unhappily married people around, and I'll do that. And, you know, as far as choosing the wrong one, I'll just have my eyes plucked out, so I'll never look at another woman again. None of us went through that kind of process before we got married, but we got married anyways. Why? And we didn't sit there and work through a list of things and check off a list. We got married because it was a real relationship. We stopped thinking of it as marriage, and we started thinking of it as Amanda, or whatever your wife's name is. You weren't afraid of committing to marriage you were committing to her, and you realized, if I don't commit to her, I'm going to be making a huge mistake. And I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And it's the same way when, when adults come to faith in Jesus Christ. Is that at some point, the light comes on. Sometimes it's a light like pre-January 1st, uh, 2014, like the, the real light bulbs that you actually turn it on and it comes on. And sometimes it's like the post-January one, like the CFL bulbs that you turn it on, and five minutes later, you finally have light. Um, it just depends, but eventually that light comes on, and you realize that if I don't choose God, if I don't choose a relationship with God, something, it, it, there's very, some, something really personal here. And if I don't choose him, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. No, I, I'm going to regret it for the rest of eternity. So what I want us to look at this morning is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and starting in verse 43, and we have this story of Philip and Nathaniel. And this is the story of Nathaniel and how the light comes on for Nathaniel. Uh, this is a, a great passage, and I, I love John. John is another one of those writers in the New Testament that he's, he tells you what his agenda is. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Like, that's his agenda for writing. Everything that he includes in this book is so that anyone who reads it would believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. That's his agenda. And he includes this story in here, and I love it. It starts like this in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So Jesus is leaving for Galilee, which is like the region where he grew up. And he says, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. So Philip has probably been watching Jesus over the past couple weeks or months. And he sees Jesus and he says, man, that guy's got something about him. You know what? If he calls me and says, follow me, I'm there. I'm going to follow him. So Jesus says, Philip, follow me. And Philip comes. And the very next thing that Philip does is he goes out and he finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says this. In verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the, all the prophets wrote. Jesus, and then he says something that he sh probably should not say. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All right, and, and we're not there living in that time, so we really don't have an understanding of the weight of what Philip is saying when he says that we found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. 
He's saying that we found the one that Moses wrote about over 1,500 years ago. People had been waiting and waiting and waiting for this prophet that would come, for this man of God, for the son of God that would come, that had been promised by Moses 1,500 years ago. In fact, some people had just given up waiting. said, you know what, I'm tired of waiting. It's been 1,500 years. This must not, this thing's just not going to happen. And Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, we found the one. Like, we found him. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, Philip, we grew up together, man. I know you. And I know that you, you are not the guy to find the one. You're not the guy to find the Messiah. And you said this guy's from Nazareth? Nazareth? Like, the next thing he says is this. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And what you have to understand is that Nazareth was a little bit like uh, Appalachia today, right? Like, it's kind of this podunk area. Um, this would be like if I came to you and said, uh, hey, you and, and maybe someone in your family has cancer, and I found the guy that has the cure for cancer. You'd probably say, well, great, where is he? MD Anderson? Is he at St. Jude's? Johns Hopkins? The Mayo Clinic? Where, where should I go? And I said, no, he's, he's in Muleshoe, Texas. You'd be like, Muleshoe? Is that even really, a, like, you're pulling my leg. There's not a place called Muleshoe, Texas. I'm like, no, he's in Muleshoe, Texas. It's south of Bovina, just west of Earth. Earth, Texas, like you go to Earth and you keep going and you'll, you'll run into this guy. You'd look at me like I was crazy and say, you know what, I, I'm going to save myself the 12-hour trip out, to, <laughs> out there to Muleshoe and, and I, I, there's no way that that's real. And that's exactly what Nathaniel says. He's like, there's no way that anything good could come from Nazareth. This can't be the one. And you know, at this point, Philip could have done what we all do he could have sat down with the scriptures and said, let me show you from scripture where it says that, that uh, the Messiah will be, let me make the case that the Messiah will be from Nazareth. And I mentioned that he's the son of Joseph. Let me show you that not just Joseph, his adoptive earthly father, but his, his real mother on earth uh, were both descendants of David. And it show, let me show you from scripture that they're descendants of David and how it's prophesied that he will be, the Messiah will be a descendant of David. He could have said that. He could have done that, but Nathaniel would be no closer to a relationship with Jesus. And here's what Philip says. He says, come and see. Come and see. I'm not going to debate with you. I, I, could, I could win the argument. Like, I could win this argument using Scripture, and I could win. And you would be wrong, and I would be right. But you'd be no closer to meeting Jesus Come and see. Come and see. So Philip comes with him, and it says, When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Some versions say, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Jesus is saying, Nathanael is a guy that is not going to lie to you. He's going to tell you exactly what's on his mind. Right? I, and for this reason, I think that Nathanael probably wasn't married. Um, because if his wife ever said, does this robe make me look fat? He'd probably say, yeah, it does. But it's only because you really are, uh, you know. And so, like, he's that kind of guy. Like, he just says whatever, whatever is on his mind. And it reminds me a little bit of Peter, kind of the same way. And so, in whom there's nothing false. Like, the guy just tells it like it is. And Nathaniel's response is, how do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus goes on and he says, uh, 
I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, Philip, uh, before Philip called you. And at this point, Nathaniel could have said, that's, that's pretty amazing, but um, let's talk about this Nazareth thing. Like, tell me more about you actually being from Nazareth. That's not what he says. He says this. He says, you, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel has now encountered Jesus. And the, the thing about uh, when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, that's, we know from early rabbinic literature, early writings in, in uh, the Jewish culture, that that's an idiom for he was having a quiet time. People would go, I don't know if you ever um, have seen a, a nice fig tree. Jared and Devin Bush have a great one in their backyard, puts out some nice uh, sweet figs uh, last year. Pretty sticky, but they're great. Um, but these fig trees provide a lot of shade. And so people would go and they would, they would sit under these fig trees where it was nice and shady, where they could sit for a long time, and they would meditate on the word of God, and they would spend time in prayer. It was like having a quiet time. And so Philip is there under the fig tree, and he's thinking he's, it's just him and God there. And Jesus says, guess what? I saw you. I was there with you because I am God. And Philip knows exactly what Jesus is saying, and he declares, you are the son of God. Like the light comes on. And all of a sudden, those questions about Nazareth, those questions about the son of Joseph, they're still there, but they shrink in comparison to the reality of this relationship with Jesus Christ. And he begins to understand that, yeah, I may still have questions. I may still have objections, but they shrink in comparison with the reality that the God of the universe wants a relationship with me. And here's, here's what I want, to, uh, I want us to know, is that God wants you to know him more than he wants you to know the answers to your questions. God wants you to know him more than he wants you to know the answers to your questions. Like you, you can still have questions, and in fact, some, sometimes you come to faith, people come to faith as adults, and they bring those same questions with them but they realize that now I have a relationship with God and, and I still have questions. And in fact, now that I've been reading the Bible, I've got a lot more questions, right? I've got even more questions, but I'm asking them now as an insider instead of an outsider. Um, this past week, Stephen and I were working at Chianfrani Coffee Shop and we ran into a man um, who doesn't live here in Georgetown. And we were kind of talking about the series and uh, I was a little bummed when I found out that he's already a Christian because I was hoping to tell him about Jesus. But he said, you know what it was for me? You know how I found out about Jesus? You know when the light came on for me? I was hit uh, with the realization that I was an alcoholic. Like I had all these questions, but my alcoholism brought me to a point where I recognized my need for a relationship with Jesus Christ and a relationship with God. And so I brought all my questions with me, but now I was asking them as an insider instead of an outsider. It would be like if, if I came home one evening and my neighbors uh, had a moving truck out front and I knew they were out of town and there's a moving truck and there's people moving their stuff out of their house into the moving truck. Like my first thought would be, uh, okay, I need to figure out what's going on here, but uh, I'm, I'm not about to go over there by myself because, you know, these guys, if they are doing something wrong, they're probably not going to like being approached. So I'm going to call the police and, and have the police come and check this out. Now imagine if... if I looked a little bit closer and I saw that it was my dad. And my dad's over there moving stuff 
out of my neighbor's house into a moving truck. You know what my first thought would be? I should probably go give him a hand. That looks kind of heavy. Like, I still have questions about, Dad, why, why are you moving uh, my neighbor's stuff out of their house when they're not home? And I'm still going to ask those questions, but now they're questions that I'm asking of my dad. It's the same way when we as adults become believers. When the light comes on, we can come to God with all of our questions. And instead of asking them as an outsider, they're now questions that we ask of our father, of our dad. Because God wants us to know him more than he wants us to know the answers to our questions. And, and here's, here's what I want to challenge you with if, if you're here or that you would pray for your, your friends and family who don't know Jesus is this, that you would pray this week and throughout this series, Heavenly Father, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. If you would just pray that. I truly believe that God would begin working in your life and the light may come on. The next thing that that I want us to to see that we're going to see throughout this this series, it's actually the tagline for this series, is that you don't have to understand everything to believe in something. I mean, I'm sure Nathaniel still had lots of questions about Nazareth and being the son of Joseph, a descendant of David, but he comes He doesn't understand everything, but he now believes in something. And what's great is uh, what, what Jesus continues on to say. He says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Like that's what makes you believe? You shall see greater things than that. And you know what Philip did? Philip saw greater, uh, Nathaniel and Philip and all the disciples saw greater things than that. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. They saw the blind see, the lame healed, and the deaf speak. But they were also witness to the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that Easter night when he appeared to the 12, or the 11. He appeared to them and said, I'm here, I'm alive. Like he got to witness that, the greatest miracle that ever happened. And what I, Jesus goes on, and I love this. He says, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't know this for sure, but this is, this is my uh, educated guess, is that what Jesus is talking about here, he's alluding to Genesis chapter 28. Have you ever heard of Jacob's ladder? Anybody ever heard of that? So Jacob is out in the desert, and he lays down, puts his head on the rock, and he has a dream about angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth on this ladder. And Jesus says to, to Nathaniel, um, he, he brings this passage up, and part of me thinks that maybe that's what Nathaniel was meditating on. Like, Jesus just blew Nathaniel's mind. Like, not only was I there with you, I can tell you the passage you were thinking about. I don't know that for sure, but what Jesus is really saying is this, that when Jacob had that dream, he had a dream about a ladder that connected heaven and earth. And I'm telling you, I am that connection between heaven and earth. I am the connection between man and God. And you're going to see that as you walk with me. Come follow me. Now, I don't know where you are this morning, whether that's something you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you already believe that, or 
or if you maybe have family members who don't yet believe that. Um, but what I want to share with you now is, is very simply how you can go from being the outsider to being an insider to having that relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And um, I just want to encourage you, your pastor is going to tell you, I want you to draw on your bulletin today. All right, you have permission. This next part, you're going to get to draw on your bulletin. How cool is that, that you're not going to get in trouble for drawing on your bulletin at church? Um, because this is something that I want you to take with you, and I want you to be able to reflect on. And if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're not yet a Christ follower, that you would be able to look at this later and be praying through it as you say, God, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. And this would bring some clarity. Or that if you are a believer, that you have friends and families where you live, live, work, and play, that you could go to them and say, let me show you how you can have this relationship and, and these obstacles can shrink. You can bring your questions. And we're going to see again that Jesus is that connection between heaven and earth. And it starts with Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what you see here is that there are two opposite sides. There are two uh, cliffs, if you will, and there's a great chasm in between, and we're on one side and God's on the other. And it says that we fall short of God's glory. That means God's standard is perfection, and there's no way that we could meet it because we all have sinned. I mean, we have all done something that God calls sin, and if we're honest with ourselves, we don't need the Bible to tell us that. Like we, we can figure that out on our own, that we all sin. The next verse is Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death in the first part of that. The wages of sin is death. A wage is simply something that you earn. Sin, it simply means to miss the mark. And it, this verse tells us that because of our sin, we have earned death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. That means when we die... We are eternally separated from God in his presence. And it goes on in, in 623b, it says, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So God gives us a gift, and a gift is something that's freely given and freely received. And this gift is from God, and that gift is life. I mean, just look at those two. Think about wages, sin, and death compared to gift, God and life. These are all good things. And, and God knew that because of our sin, there was no way that we could get from our wages, from earning death into life that he wants to give us. And so Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates in his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see that even in spite of our sin, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. There's a lot of stuff going on in that verse. Let me just unpack it for you. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace just means that we didn't earn it, Right? We didn't deserve it, but God gives it to us anyways. Because of our sin, we, we deserved death. But God gives us grace. By grace you are saved. That just means that you're rescued from the penalty of your sins. That when Jesus died on the cross, that he took the penalty for, that you owed and died in your place. An exchange was made, right? So we owed a penalty that we couldn't pay because of our sin. But Jesus was sinless and perfect. And so God took 
our sinfulness and put it on Jesus Christ, and he took Christ's sinlessness, his righteousness, and he put it on us. And that happens when through faith we begin a relationship with God. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith means this. It means simply trusting. Like you're sitting in a chair, and I guarantee you're not using the strength of your own legs to hold you up off the floor. You're resting in that chair. You're trusting in that chair. If you look at this and you think of this cross going across from us to God as a bridge, you see it as a bridge. I mean, think about walking across the bridge. When you're in the middle of it, you are powerless. You can do nothing except trust in that bridge to hold you up to get you to the other side. And that's exactly what God asks us to do in his son, Jesus Christ, is simply to rest in him, to trust in him. You are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. It's not about going to church, how much you give, how good you are. Those things don't matter. What matters is that personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when I, I want to ask you this morning, you may still have all your questions, you have objections. Will you bring those to God and begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Bring those to God. Ask those questions of your father rather than as someone standing on the outside. I'm going to ask that everyone would bow their head and close their eyes. And if you're here this morning and for the first time, maybe the light came on for you. Maybe you hear this and you hear that, that Jesus came. He was sent by God to live a perfect life. To die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and on the third day be raised again, proving that he had overcome sin and death. And you hear that and, and you hear that you can be saved simply by trusting or resting in him. And that makes sense to you this morning. I just want to give you a chance to respond to God and say, God, yes, I am choosing Jesus Christ. I am asking that Jesus Christ would be my savior. And if that's you, would you, would you just pray this with me? You don't have to pray it out loud, just just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. And God, I believe that there is no way that I can get to you apart from your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that he rose from the dead. And I am trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you, God, for this beautiful gift. In Jesus' name, amen.